Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of St. Louis, Missouri. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Twenty-eight-year-old Jennifer Rothwell always had a plan. She loved planning for birthdays and holidays. She loved planning for her family trips to North Carolina, and she undeniably loved planning for her future. She was brilliant and went to the University of Missouri Columbia to pursue her dream of becoming a chemical engineer. It was there in one of those labs that she met and fell in love with another engineering student named Bo. They both graduated in June of 2013, and by the following month, Jennifer had landed her dream job at DuPont, and in time, Bo followed suit. They both wound up working as chemical engineers, just at different companies in the St. Louis area. Two years after graduating, in September of 2015, Jennifer and Bo tied the knot and went on this amazing honeymoon to Hawaii. They lounged by the pool, picked up coconuts on the beach, and took a helicopter ride above the volcanoes. Once they got back home, their life was really as normal as it could possibly be. Jennifer made friends at work and started helping out at a nonprofit that helped families in need with affordable childcare, while Bo also made friends with his coworkers and joined a racquetball league. Three years into their marriage, Jennifer and Bo took the leap and bought a house, and it was a big one. It was a four-bedroom, three-bathroom, 3,500-square-foot rancher, which is a ton of house for two people. But neither of them wanted to keep it that way. Jennifer and Bo both wanted to be parents, and after settling into the house, they started trying for a baby. Unfortunately, the process wasn't exactly simple for them and came with its fair share of heartbreak. Month after month, the tests were negative, and by the end of the year, Fox 2 reports that Jennifer was diagnosed with endometriosis. It was a tough reality, but it didn't mean that pregnancy wasn't possible. 
So while the two processed what that meant, they went about their normal lives trying to make the most of it. They both continued on as a happily married couple with impressive jobs and philanthropic hearts, even attending a charity trivia night with their friends on November 9, 2019. Three days after the charity event, on November 12th, Bo got a call from one of Jennifer's co-workers saying she hadn't shown up for work that day, which was strange because, according to him, he had seen her leave the house for work in her work clothes at 6.20 that morning. There had been a pretty bad winter storm for the previous 24 hours, including freezing rain and snow, and as prepared as Missouri can be for winter weather, locals say that for whatever reason, the roads weren't treated the way they usually were. There was ice covering them, and a lot of people actually chose not to go to work that day. The idea that something might have happened to Jennifer on the way to work sent everyone into a panic and they all set out to look for her. And according to KSKD, it didn't take them long to find something. At around 8 p.m. in pure darkness, co-workers stumbled across Jennifer's car less than a mile and a half from her house near the intersection of Olive Boulevard and Fifi Road. Olive Boulevard is a pretty major highway through the area. Jennifer wasn't in her car, but her cell phone was. Her co-workers called Bo, who made his way there, and at 9.44 p.m., he officially reported Jennifer missing. He had the police meet him at her abandoned vehicle, as far as I can tell. There was some concern that maybe the ice had run her off the road or she'd been in some kind of accident, but according to St. Louis Today, there were no skid marks in the ice and there was no damage to her car and it was running just fine. There seemed to be no reason for her car to have been pulled over on the side of the road. It made no sense and if she wasn't in her car, then where was she? This wasn't the kind of weather where you just get out and take a walk, and even if she had, there was an endless array of parking lots that she could have pulled into. Now, Bo was the one who reported his wife missing. However, in full-blown, the husband did it energy, he refused to let the police search their own house for any signs of where she might have gone, nor did he let them search his phone, vehicle, or get a sample of his DNA. At that point, I think the police were just trying to see what all he would deny them access to because getting DNA at that point isn't exactly customary. But if it was a test, he failed it hard. So hard that he asked for an attorney. His whole wife had been missing for a day. He hadn't seemed to notice. And now he wanted an attorney. The search for Jennifer went on throughout the night and into Wednesday, but there was still no sign of her. Bo did participate in the searches and also made sure to post on his Facebook to let everyone know what was going on. Sort of. At around 4 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon, he posted, Some of you may have heard already, but last night my wife Jennifer went missing. I filed a police report and the search is ongoing. If you hear anything or have any information, it would be greatly appreciated. He instructed that anyone with information please comment it below the post or text him. He provided his personal phone number, which will live on forever in screenshot history. While his Facebook post and searching may have feigned the idea that he actually gave a shit about finding his wife, police weren't buying it. And while his nubby little fingers were typing away, detectives were busy getting a warrant to search the house also his phone, and also his car. Basically everything he touched. They got it, and that evening, Fox 2 reported seeing a heavy police presence around the Rothwell house. 
They counted 10 to 15 officers and eventually said that they'd seen a man being taken away from the area in handcuffs. Since there was so much police activity, it was a little hard for reporters to be sure about what they had seen. But let's be very clear. At 7.45 p.m. on November 13th, less than 24 hours after reporting his wife missing, Bo Rothwell was taken into custody. Later that night, the St. Louis County Police Department posted an update to Facebook that changed everything. They confirmed Bo was in custody, but that he hadn't been charged yet. He was on a hold where they'd have 24 hours to charge him with the crime he was suspected of, and that crime was murder. The police department reclassified Jennifer's missing persons investigation to a homicide investigation. Whatever they had found in that house was evidence that whatever happened to Jennifer, she couldn't have survived it. The clock was ticking and they had 24 hours to formally charge Bo or he'd be released from custody. With the timer on Bo's 24-hour hold ticking down, it was all hands on deck at the police department. Locals as far as five miles away reported that police had asked them to review their security footage for anything that might have seemed strange. As spread out as their footwork was at the beginning of the day, it all seemed to narrow down to Robinwood West Park as the sun went down. It's a small little park and field across the street from the Rothwell House. Based on photos of police vehicles set up, it looks like they were entering the park less than a half a mile away from their house. Crime scene tape was put up and officers could be seen searching with flashlights, and by nightfall, there were several conflicting reports. After an evidence van parked near the scene, there were immediate reports that Jennifer's body was found, but all from quote-unquote sources and never from the police themselves. Everyone was left to wonder if Bo really had killed his wife and left her body within walking distance of their home. With everything going on in the search Wednesday night, it took until the following morning for the public to realize that just hours before Bo's hold had run up, they had charged him. But not with murder, they charged him with tampering with physical evidence. No one had to question what evidence that was because it was all there in the court documents for everyone to see. It's a little hard to know where to even start here, but let's go with the garbage cans. Wednesday was trash day, so on Tuesday night, even though his wife was missing and he was requesting an attorney, Bo did make sure to take the trash to the street. And once the trash is on the street, it is no longer yours. Detectives took the garbage and started sifting through it and immediately were hit with a strong chemical smell, which honestly just told them what they'd already suspected all along. Though they probably didn't think he'd actually leave any evidence in his own garbage cans, but he sure as shit did. According to St. Louis Today, they found discarded cleaning supplies, rubber gloves, and paper towels. As if the Hansel to their Gretel, he also managed to leave the receipt for all of the above in the trash cans as well. It said that all the items had been purchased on the night of the 11th, the day before Jennifer was reported missing. That was a little odd because in what limited interaction Bo did have with the police, he told them that he and Jennifer had spent the night at home watching cooking shows. 
Someone in that house had left in a snowstorm to buy bleach, carpet cleaner, and rubber gloves, and thanks to that receipt with the store and timestamp on it, detectives were about to find out who it was. Obviously, store surveillance footage showed it was Bo, and he hadn't purchased them with a debit card like a normal person. He'd split the transaction between a gift card and cash, likely trying to make sure the transaction didn't show up on his bank statements. That effort was absolutely wasted, and officers actually found the depleted gift card in the trash. According to KSDK, he made an attempt to hide it in the lining of a meal delivery box. I'm going to go out on a limb and say if you're buying cleaning supplies in a snowstorm with a gift card and then going to the effort of hiding that now depleted gift card in a meal kit box, there's a solid chance you're involved in a crime. Needless to say, all of that was enough for detectives to get a warrant to search the inside of the Rothwell home, and it was there that it became clear that something terrible had happened. The house reeked of chemicals, they found multiple bottles of bleach, and at the bottom of the basement stairs, they found carpet that was soaked in it, but the bleach wasn't enough to cover up the blood stains that had seeped deep into the carpet, down into the padding, and stained the concrete below. According to St. Louis Today, Bo had even set up a fan near the doused carpet and opened up a window in the basement. It was in the 30s that day, so the window clearly wasn't open to catch a breeze. As police continued searching the house, they made their way to the garage and again were hit with the overwhelming smell of chemicals. Just like the basement, a window had been opened, likely to combat the fumes, and the chemical smell was coming from Bo's pickup truck. According to the court documents regarding the tampering with physical evidence charge, police believed that Bo purchased and applied cleaning products to a large area of blood in effort to destroy or remove physical evidence with the purpose to impair its availability in an investigation into the murder of Jennifer Rothwell. Which, if true, sounds like Jennifer was killed on or before the 11th and not on the 12th when he claimed to have seen her leave for work in a snowstorm. Bo had his first court appearance the morning his arrest hit the news, and while it wasn't for a murder charge, it was something. The prosecutor stated that Jennifer's body had not been located yet, and Bo being behind bars would keep him from tampering with any further evidence, like wherever her body might be. He was initially given a $100,000 bond on the night of his arrest, but at his hearing, it was increased to $500,000 and cash only, meaning he wasn't going to be able to muster up 10% of that and weasel his way out of jail. If he somehow managed to come up with that kind of money or someone felt like he was worth it, he'd have to hand over his passport before he was processed out and he would be on a GPS monitor. He was ordered to have absolutely zero contact with Jennifer's family and if released, had to stay 1,000 feet away from them, which I absolutely love, considering there is no way he'd be able to eyeball that. He would also be barred from drinking any alcohol, couldn't take any drugs that weren't prescribed to him, and couldn't be in possession of any firearms. As good as it felt to have Bo in a lonely little cell, it felt even better when after his hearing for the tampering charge, he was taking a trip down to undeniably fucktown. Later that day, even though Jennifer's body still hadn't been found, Bo Rothwell was charged with second-degree murder. 
According to the probable cause statement for the murder charge, Fox 2 reports that Jennifer's parents' DNA had been run in comparison to the blood found on the carpet in the basement, and it was a match. There was no doubt that the catastrophic blood loss that had taken place on that floor was from Jennifer, and for that, Bo was held without bond. With everything we know now, there were still people who were shocked by Bo's arrest. Not in a way where they thought he was innocent, but more so that they never saw it coming. He had absolutely no previous criminal history, I couldn't even find a speeding ticket, and everyone who'd been around the couple in the time leading up to the incident didn't see any signs that there was anything wrong with their marriage. They seemed happy and completely normal. Now, I did see some rumors about some fuckery of Bo's in college, and they made him seem like a completely calculated turd, and while I believe them, I can't back them up with anything, so I'm gonna have to leave them out of this episode. On Monday, November 18th, 2019, one week after Jennifer was reported missing, police were seen searching on Olive Boulevard near where her car had been found. All media attention was pointed in that direction until a little after 6 p.m., At 6.31 that evening, St. Louis Today reports that a state trooper noticed several St. Louis County police vehicles lined up along Highway 61 near Route KK. That would put those St. Louis County officers in Lincoln County jurisdiction. KMOV reports that a spokesperson for the department released a statement saying that the search was related to an ongoing investigation and that they plan to be out there for a while. Regardless of whether or not they were coming out and saying it, though, everyone knew they were looking for Jennifer's body. Within minutes of the news, reporters were parked outside of the search area and news stations had helicopters live streaming the search from above. The area of the search was not exactly close to the Rothwell home. It was about 44 miles north and on a pretty desolate stretch of the highway. The area seemed way too specific to have been a hunch, and the public started to wonder if maybe Bo had talked, and I'll be damned if they weren't right. Bo and his attorney had requested a meeting with detectives and provided the location of Jennifer's body. His attorney told KMOV that he hopes and expects police to find her body tonight. He told St. Louis Today, My client and I are working with the St. Louis County Police Department and the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office to bring closure to this case and to all parties involved. It felt like there was a major media effort in Bo's camp to try and make it clear that he was cooperating, but it doesn't feel like you should get brownie points for that after you murder your wife. Just after midnight on November 18th, police held a press conference saying that they had found a body and they did believe that it was Jennifer's. DNA confirmed her identity two days later, which would have been her 29th birthday. Her body was found just 20 yards off the highway in a wooded area. She was found completely nude with brush concealing part of her body. Police believe Bo put her body out there sometime in the early morning hours of the 12th before he ever made up that bullshit story about her leaving for work. Five days after finding Jennifer's body, preliminary autopsy results stated that her cause of death was blunt force injuries to the head. If that wasn't enough to crush your soul, it was determined that Jennifer Rothwell was six weeks pregnant at the time of her murder. That made Jennifer one of the obscene number of homicide victims killed while pregnant. According to Harvard, the leading cause of death in pregnant women and women who have recently given birth is homicide. 
Dr. Zenobia Brown told CNN that as a woman, you are 35% more likely to be killed when you're pregnant or postpartum than when you're not. That statistic is terrifying in a way that I'm not even sure how to explain because pregnancy is supposed to be this beautiful time where a couple is creating a whole human that they plan to love selflessly until the end of time. But in reality, the mother of that unborn child is at a higher risk of being murdered than she will ever be. As if this couldn't get any worse, Bo Rothwell joined the ranks of Chris Watts and Scott Peterson when it hit the news that he had been having an affair. For anyone salty about that comment and thinks that Scott Peterson is innocent or that he didn't get a fair trial, please listen to the prosecutor's six-part series and recent catch-all episode about the trial and then tell me what you think. But that's not why we're here, so let's get back to the case. On December 5th, Bo Rothwell was in court to set a date for his preliminary hearing, which is basically like a mini trial where the prosecution proves that it has enough to back up their charges. The date was set, but there was a solid chance they'd never have a preliminary hearing because the case was going to a grand jury in the next few months, and if they indicted him, his case would be going straight to trial. The hearing was a whole lot of courthouse procedure, but what really mattered here was that clearly... Bo had not been offered a deal in return for the location of Jennifer's body. It also meant that he hadn't pled guilty, which is nuts. This dirty little gremlin was going to have to go to trial for what he had done, and I feel like I can almost see it now that he already planned to claim that she fell down the stairs and he panicked and hit her body. In August of 2020, Bo was in fact indicted by a grand jury, and it probably didn't go how he thought it was going to go. Instead of indicting him for second-degree murder like he had been previously charged, they indicted him for first-degree murder, along with abandonment of a corpse and that tampering with evidence charge. It took almost two years for Bo to stand trial, but in April of this year, 2022, it finally happened. He'd be tried in front of a jury of his peers, but he requested that the judge be the one to decide his sentence. I doubt he thought there was a jury in hell who would feel even a semblance of pity towards him. Bo's trial was a lot different than most of the ones that we have covered, because with as much as we already knew about the case, there was so much more that we didn't. All of the information about this trial will come from the incredible coverage done by KMOV, St. Louis Today, Fox 2, and KSDK. Even opening statements at this trial were heartbreakingly jaw-dropping. The prosecutor told the jury that Bo struck her in the head with violent homicidal force and crushed her skull, adding after he murdered her, he cleaned up evidence, her blood with cleaning supplies, and he took her body about an hour away, stripped her naked, put a trash bag over her head, secured it with duct tape, and hid her in the woods. Bo's defense attorney stated that while Bo may have killed his wife, it wasn't premeditated, that he'd killed her in the heat of passion during an argument they were having about his affair. Bo wasn't denying that he had murdered his wife, they were just trying to prove that it wasn't premeditated first-degree murder. Though premeditation doesn't mean that you planned it months or even days in advance. It just means that at some point during the murder, there was a moment where the death could have been prevented, but a choice was made to make the death imminent. 
Bo's own defense stated that he struck Jennifer so hard that her brain hemorrhaged. However, we know that there was an unsurvivable amount of blood on the basement floor. When you hit your head so hard that your brain hemorrhages, the blood stays inside of your skull. His defense didn't even begin to explain what happened. When Jennifer's body was found, the wound to her head had exposed her brain. The officer who found her body said that even from feet away, he could see the depression in the right side of her head. By the time she was found, animals had already torn through the bag that was duct taped around her head. A forensic pathologist testified to the fact that there's no way the damage to Jennifer's skull was done by a fist, that the damage done to her was equivalent to someone being launched out of a vehicle during a crash and hitting the pavement, falling off of a large building, or being shot in the head. When asked if the wound could have come from being hit by a hammer, the pathologist said that even your traditional hammer was too small to inflict the damage done to Jennifer. She had been struck up to three times on the right side of her head and also had two lacerations to the left side. I shit you not that after admitting that Bo struck Jennifer in the head, his defense then tried to present the idea that Jennifer had fallen down the stairs during their argument that she'd hit her head on a corner protrusion. You cannot make any of this up, and they even referenced some of the damage to the drywall in the basement, but that was thwarted really fast when they realized it wouldn't explain the multiple dents in the wall. Bo's defense also tried to claim that Jennifer's pregnancy wasn't a surprise and that he was happy about it, However, Jennifer's search history and Bo's messages to his mistress told a totally different story. When his mistress found out that Jennifer was missing, she went to the police and gave them access to all of their texts and Facebook messages. Based on text messages between Bo and Jennifer on October 26th of 2019 about pregnancy tests, it looks like they found out either that day or the following day. On October 27th, Bo texted his mistress, I thought I would have the courage to go through a divorce by now. When she asked him how long he'd been thinking about getting a divorce, he told her two to three months, which is interesting considering his text to his wife had been all about baby names, nurseries, and ovulation tests. Two days later, on October 29th, Bo messaged his mistress again, saying, I can't focus or do anything productive. There's a big thing I have to tell you. I'm in panic mode, lol. Jennifer took a pregnancy test and it came back positive. I want to be with you instead. I have no fucking clue what to do. Believe me, this is not what I wanted. I feel terrible inside. I'm a fucking mess. I feel trapped. Trapped by a baby that he and his wife have been trying for for over a year. Bo is a lying piece of shit, and I have no idea why his defense even tried to say that he was happy about the pregnancy. His team would have had access to the discovery and what the prosecution was gonna present at trial, and knowing these texts were a part of that, they still led with some bullshit about him being happy about it. The text kept going, and on October 30th, Bo messaged his mistress saying, Part of me wants this pregnancy to not work out. If there is a miscarriage or something, I'll leave her after that and be with you. The two then came up with a plan, or three plans. Option one, they'd cease all contact and end things. Option two, Bo would tell Jennifer he was having an affair and file for divorce, though he noted that would be financially draining, trying to juggle a child and start over. 
Then there was the third option, that they would see if a miscarriage or something happened, and if it did, Bo would use that opportunity to leave Jennifer and be with his mistress. They continued talking about option three and said that if her pregnancy went forward with no complications, they'd revert back to plan one to cease all contact and end things, which sounds a whole lot like they were going to continue their affair until something happened. And they did. On November 1st, Bo texted his mistress a shirtless selfie. And let's be clear, he has nothing to look at. He also told her that it felt so good to hug her that day. And two days later, eight days before Jennifer was killed, messages confirmed that the two had met up and had sex. On November 4th, Jennifer went online and Googled, what do you do if your husband isn't happy that you're pregnant? She then proceeded to click on websites and forums that popped up. The morning after Bo killed Jennifer, he texted his mistress saying that he hadn't slept much because he had a stomach bug. In reality, he had spent the night murdering his wife, going to the grocery store to buy cleaning supplies, cleaning the carpet and his truck, wrapping Jennifer's head in a plastic bag, taking the clothes off of her body, leaving her an hour away on the side of the highway, and then cleaning some more. During the trial, the prosecution played the video of Bo telling detectives where they could find Jennifer's body. He referred to her as the body and told them there is going to be a black trash bag over the head. He also let them know ahead of time that there would be no clothing. On April 28th, Bo took the stand in his own defense, which is usually the worst idea ever. And it in fact was, at least for Bo, but frankly, nobody gives a shit about Bo at this point. He told the court that he and Jennifer had been trying to get pregnant since 2018, but by May or June of 2019, it had become more of a chore. He claimed that Jennifer agreed to cut back on trying to conceive. Meanwhile, he started an affair. And let's be clear, they had absolutely not cut back on trying to conceive. Next on his list of absolute garbage coming out of his mouth, he said that Jennifer told him she was pregnant in September, which is absolutely not the case. In their texts, they talked about pregnancy tests on October 26th. He told his mistress about the pregnancy on the 29th. Jennifer was six weeks pregnant when she was killed on November 11th, which would mean that she didn't even conceive until mid-October. When it comes to how she announced her pregnancy to Beau, he told the court that it was awkward that she had told him about it when he was signing for pizza. This little bitch had the audacity to seem disappointed in the way she announced it, referencing how she'd watched reveals on YouTube a lot. Oh, poor cheating ass, murdering ass Bo didn't get some magical, sentimental pregnancy reveal from the wife and unborn child that he killed just two weeks later. I don't know how he or his defense thought that speaking in front of a jury would help him, but it most certainly did not. On the night of the murder, Bo claims that he threw himself at Jennifer's mercy, that he confessed to all of his little cheating sins at the kitchen table and was willing to deal with the consequences. He said that Jennifer asked him who his mistress was, but he refused to tell her. To which he reports she told him that he could keep his mystery bitch, and it's at that point that Bo started playing the victim card, claiming that Jennifer shoved him and told him that she was having an affair and that the baby wasn't even his. 
0% of that is believable, and for the record, fetal tissue was tested and the baby was, of course, Bose. But none of that mattered, at least not to him. He went on to tell a story that made no logical sense, and rest assured, we're going to pick the shit out of all of it. Bo claimed that he went into a red haze like he was some kind of anime villain, and that he picked up a mallet he used to hang decorations that just so happened to be conveniently nearby. He admitted that he hit her in the head while she was still sitting down, which doesn't match up with his claim that she shoved him. Did she shove him sitting down? I also want to point out the fact that the wounds on her head were on the right side. Judging by photos of him holding a coconut and a drink on his honeymoon, he's right-handed. Assuming he used the mallet with his dominant hand, that would mean that he most likely hit Jennifer from behind. After attacking Jennifer with the mallet, he claimed that she stumbled to the door. Some reports on his testimony say that she stumbled to the garage and other to the basement door, but we're going to go with the basement door because that's what makes the most sense. Otherwise, he's lost it again, which is also absolutely possible. Once at the basement door, Bo says that he hit her again, adding, I believe I cracked her skull. She fell unconscious and fell down the stairs. He claims to have checked on her, but that she was unresponsive and he couldn't tell if she was alive, which is bullshit because her brain was exposed and there was so much blood that it stained the concrete beneath the carpet and the carpet padding. Considering what Bo claims happened, the prosecution disagreed with most of it. They believed that Bo ambushed Jennifer at the bottom of the basement stairs, which would honestly make more sense. As far as I could find, they didn't find any evidence of a struggle anywhere but the bottom of the basement stairs. Not in the kitchen, not on the way down the stairs, and this would have been an extremely gruesome injury. If Bo was telling the truth, he'd have to explain why the only blood they found was at the bottom of the basement stairs, not in the kitchen or going down the stairs. After killing Jennifer, Bo testified that he got the idea to remove her clothes from TV shows that discuss the concealing of evidence. Basically, true crime. He said that he left her body on the side of the highway sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. On his way back, he threw a tarp he had used to hold her body, along with some cleaning supplies, into a business trash can. When he got home, he abandoned her car, walked home in the ice storm, and then went to work to make it seem like nothing was off. He also admitted to using her cell phone to call his, which is insane because the calls from her phone to his were at 7.29 p.m. on the day she was reported missing. Her phone was found in the center console of her abandoned car, which would have to mean that he went back to her car half an hour before it was found and called his own phone with it. Bo also used his lunch break at work that day to go back home and continue trying to get Jennifer's blood out of the carpet. At the end of Bo's time on the stand, the prosecutor asked him one simple question. He asked Bo if he still talked to his mistress every day, to which Bo replied, not every day. The prosecutor challenged his response with, you don't? Which is when Bo admitted that the two of them had talked almost every day since he was arrested two and a half years prior. Not only am I disgusted with Bo on an undeniable level, but I also have no words for his mistress who, by the way, had her own kids. Bo had made a pros and cons list about her five months before Jennifer was killed. The pros were a better sex life, more respect, and a fresh start, though he wondered if the cost was too high. 
As for the cons, he listed half of my assets slash money, aka divorce, trust is shaken slash tainted, my family disappointment, and take on her kids with his problems. Bo had chosen his mistress, but not through divorce like any normal human being. He chose his mistress through the murder of his wife and unborn child. A wife who was also a daughter and a sister who spent her entire life preparing for the moment she could give her child the world. Bo killed his wife to solve his own self-afflicted problems, leaving every other person who loved and adored her and who would have loved and adored her child with nothing but her memory. After Bo's testimony, the jury was sent out for deliberations, and it took them less than three and a half hours to reach a verdict. They found him guilty on all counts. Now it was up to the judge to sentence him. That happened two months later, and whatever hope he had that a judge would have any kind of mercy on him was destroyed when he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At the hearing, the Daily Mail quotes Jennifer's mom as saying, Jennifer will never know the joy of holding her child in her arms and guiding her through life. We had hoped for more than 28 years with her. Bo has claimed that he plans to appeal his sentence, but as of yet, I haven't been able to find any documentation that he has. He says that what he did haunts him every day, and I sincerely, with every fiber in my being, hope that it does. For all photos pertaining to Jennifer's case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley and join me there tonight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media. All cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.